society. We want the spotlight to change quickly, the grocery line to move fast, and Christmas morning to arrive soon. We forget that the good things for to happen, preparations must be made. Last week, we lit the prophecy candle and reminded those who first spoke the promise of the coming Christ child. The second candle on the Advent wreath is called the Bethlehem candle. It is a symbol of the preparations being made to receive and cradle the Christ child. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But his righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and the faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den." They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now we'll light the Bethlehem candle. Would you stand? I'm going to open us in prayer. Lord, we ask for your presence with us, that you would unite us by your spirit, who is not confined by space, distance, time, that your church would be one, that we would worship you, Lord, um, with with our whole hearts. We pray for your work to be done here today.
this time. Lord, help us to surrender our hearts to you. Lord, help us to open to you, God. Be glorified, be worshipped here. Bless Everett as he brings the word. Guide his words. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. If anybody doesn't know me, I'm Everett Metters. Until recently, I was one of the elders here at Trinity, completed a term. And uh, I have the honor of bringing the word to you this morning. I want to thank uh, John Stevenson, who stepped in a few weeks ago when I was suddenly unable, that very morning, unable to uh, come in and preach. And I also want to thank thank all of you who... Uh, have been uh, have been praying for me as I was quarantining for COVID test. Uh, so thank you. Um, join me now as I as I pray. Father, we thank you for your great goodness and mercy and kindness toward us. Lord, we thank you that uh, that you didn't leave us. You didn't just create us and leave us with no sense of who you are. You didn't uh, abandon us to our speculations, but you have revealed yourself and made yourself known. You have revealed your plans to live with your people. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, you are dwelling with us now. Father, we thank you, Lord. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear your word this morning and to respond in worship and joy and obedience and repentance and in every, whatever way you move. Lord, I, I agree with Carissa's prayer that you would give me your words to speak this morning and that you would build us up in your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So when you go into somebody's house for the first time, you can look around and you can get an idea of the person who lives there. So if you were to come into my apartment 
You can look around and tell that the person who lives there is not overly concerned with tidiness and order. <laughs> you can tell from the, from the posters on the living room wall that, that that person is a fan of the Lord of the Rings. You can tell from the bottles lining some of the bookcases that that person is a fan of beer. You can tell from the books lining the bookcases and stacked on their sides, on shelves, on the bookcases, and on the coffee table, and on the ottoman, and on the little car the little little cart by the microwave, um, and and on any other space that's capable of supporting books, that uh, the person who lives there might like to read. You could tell from many of the spaces that haven't recently had books set on them that the person who lives there is not entirely opposed to the concept of dust. There, there are just a lot of things you could deduce. You could look at my furniture and, and tell that uh, I don't have any sense of decorative style. Um, or that I consider each uh, component of furniture individually in no relation to anything else. <laughs> so, so when you go into someone's home, you can look around and there are conclusions that you can draw about that person. Our passage this morning looks at the plans and instructions for the building of God's dwelling place where he will live with the Israelites. Talks about what's going to be in there, how they're supposed to build it. And then it talks about they're building it. And there are things that we can deduce about God based on the instructions and the process that he reveals for the place in which he plans to live with the Israelites. There are things about the character of God, and there are also things about the character of God's people, about what's required of someone who is going to live with this kind of God. So we're going to start in Exodus chapter... Actually, before we do that, no... We're going to start in Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 to 8. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you will receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, or if you look at uh, the little note, if you've got an ESV or another Bible that has little notes, maybe dolphin skins or dugong skins. It's also been translated badger skins. Goat skins. Acacia wood and oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, a holy place, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So we've come to a point in Exodus, and as you know, we've been going through 
going through the book of Exodus and looking, looking at what it reveals about who God is. And by the point I was originally scheduled to preach, Moses had met with the people. They had agreed to God's covenant. They had promised to follow everything that God commanded. And then Moses had gone up into the mountain. He'd gone up with the elders at Mount Sinai to, to worship and to meet with God. And then Moses himself had gone into the cloud, into the, the, the presence of God that was completely unapproachable, that no one else could even come near. God had called Moses in and began to reveal to him what was going to be needed for their covenant. And specifically, what he begins to reveal is, is, is the home that God will dwell in among the people of Israel. Going back further in Exodus, we see that, of course, the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt. God had called them out. He had delivered them through plagues, through the parting of the Red Sea, through the working of his mighty hand, and brought them to Mount Sinai, which is a pit stop. The purpose of the Exodus is not Mount Sinai. God has called his people out to take them into a promised land, a new home, a land flowing with milk and honey that he had promised even before to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to their forefathers. So he's led them. They've finished the first real stage of their journey by coming to Sinai. And here, God comes down on the mountain, we read in Exodus 19, in a cloud and in fire, and speaks to the people out of the crowd, and they freak out and ask Moses to speak for them. So Moses delivers the law. Moses intercedes between the people and God. And so that's where we were, waiting at the foot of the mountain while Moses is up there doing something the people know not what. The last couple of weeks, we've heard what the people did during this time. When, again, they freaked out because Moses was gone and asked Aaron, his brother, to make for them gods that they could worship that would be a, uh, be a focus for their need for security, for their desire for worship, for their unity as a people. So they ask Aaron to make something instead of whatever it is God is doing with Moses because as for this fellow Moses, we don't know what's happened to him, they say. While that's going on, Exodus 25 through 31 is what is going on between Moses and God. Plans for God's house. So we see here that uh, we see here the purpose of what God is doing in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 25. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And so we understand that the tabernacle, the dwelling place, the tent, is a model of something else. God's showing Moses a pattern of something that's going to be represented in this tabernacle. And that is, it is a model actually of several things. 
that on the one hand, the tabernacle is for the people of Israel. It's like a portable Sinai. They've come to this place where God has met with them. And it's a holy place. It's the place where Moses first met with God. And God says to Moses, you know, this is a sign to you that when you, when you lead the people out of Egypt, you shall worship me on this mountain. So this tabernacle, they've, they've come to this holy place and they're going to have to leave this holy place. And in, in the minds of ancient people and even in, in the minds of a, of, of a lot of modern people, the holy place is the place where you met God. Like, if, if this church is the place where you've known God and you've never met him anywhere else, then this is the holy place. And if you go away from it, you're separate from God. So for the Israelites, there could be this worry that this is where we've met our God. And if we go away from here, we go into this Canaan, we go into this promised land, we'll be separate from our God. But God says, no, I'm going to make you a place that I will dwell in your midst so I will travel, travel with you. The tabernacle is also a model of the creation. As, as you see when you get into some of the details, and there are a lot of details in the, in the following six chapters, uh, and I have been reading and reading and reading and reading over these details and trying to wrap my mind around what's being described and how it's how it's all supposed to work. And, and because I don't have a, a good spatial imagination, I'm still kind of baffled. Um, but there are people who have built scale models and replicas, and there's, there's like a life-size replica in a national park in Israel where you can go and look at this particular interpretation of the passage and, and see what it's like. But one of the things that becomes clear as you study this passage more deeply, there's a threefold structure to the tabernacle. So you've got, you've got the big tent in the midst of a bigger tent, not a bigger tent, in the midst of a courtyard. The big tent is the, the tabernacle proper, and it's about 40, uh, 45 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. So if you want to visualize that, you take the middle nine chairs of the middle section, you take the whole middle section and extend it about two feet back behind, uh, back behind the last row. And that's how long and how wide. And you take it to about the bottom of the vents there and that's how tall it was. That big tent is divided into two parts. There's an inner part that has the Ark of the Covenant that's about one-third of the length. Although, I should say this, this is another thing I've been reading and reading and reading, and it just suddenly struck me this morning that I don't think it actually says the dimensions of the, of the room that has the Ark of the Covenant in it. So if anybody can find that where it says that in Scripture, in the tabernacle, uh, I'd really appreciate it because everybody assumes it's a cubed spaced room because the one in the temple is, but I don't know that it says that for the tabernacle. Anyway, a third of the length is this room, presumably a third of the length, is this room that has the, the Ark of the Covenant. And it is the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest can go, only once a year. Then there's a larger section 
that has a golden lampstand shaped kind of like a tree of life with almond blossoms and buds and branches. There's a table, a golden table, that has uh, loaves of bread on it and some containers that may or may not hold wine, depending on where you're reading. And there's a golden altar for incense. So that's, that's the, the, the big tent. Then around that, there's a courtyard that's 100, 150 feet long by 70 feet, 75 feet wide, which is about the length of the church building. It's about 150 feet. Not quite that, the tabernacle, the tabernacle courtyard's not quite as wide as the building. I didn't get a good measurement for 75 feet. But uh, there's a courtyard, and in front of the, in the front part of the courtyard, there's a big altar where they do the burnt offerings. And there's a wash basin where the priests can wash before they go into the, before they go into the tabernacle. And the way it's structured, there is an outer court where people can approach. Then there's an inner, the inner room, or the, the front room of the, of the tabernacle where only the priests can go. And then there is the, the back room with the Ark of the Covenant where only the high priest can go only once a year. So it, it's, 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 it's a decreasing, diminishing, or increasing, depending on which way you're going. If you're coming into it, it's an increasing level of holiness. You come into a holy area, go into a more holy area, and then into the most holy area, which represents the structure which represents the, the, the experience at Sinai where there was the area that the people could go at the foot of the mountain, then there was the area where Moses and the elders went, then there was the cloud into which only Moses went. But also creation in that there is this world, this terrestrial space that we dwell in. There is an intermediate heaven and then there is the heaven where God has his throne And there's, there's, some, there's, there's just a lot of interesting material about the, the way that the construction of the, not the construction, the way that the instructions for the tabernacle are given, where they're given in seven speeches, seven times it says in verses 25 to 31, and the Lord said to Moses, or the Lord said to Moses. And the final, the, final, the seventh time, the Lord says to Moses, and he gives him instructions for the, for the keeping of the Sabbath, following kind of the pattern of the creation, where there are seven days where the Lord speaks and something is done. As there are these seven, seven moments in the instructions for the tabernacle, we see in the, in the construction when it's being built in chapters 35 to 40, that everything is done as the Lord commanded Moses. So in the creation, there are seven days where the Lord speaks and it is done what he said. So with the tabernacle, there are, there are these seven, seven times the Lord speaks and what he says is done as he commanded. So there's, there's a representation of the tabernacle that it represents the creation, it represents Sinai, and it is the place where God will be with the people and it represents, again, specifically a pattern of what was shown so that the tabernacle is on the earth as God's throne in heaven. 
on the earth as it is in heaven. So that's just some general stuff about the tabernacle. So now I want to go into specifically what it reveals about God's character. And the first thing we notice, the first thing you can deduce from this is that God is worthy of the very best that we have. Listen to this list again of what, of what God asked from the people. This is the contribution that you received from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen and dyed cloth, which we take so easily for granted. I mean, we've all got on clothes of different colors. Some of us have clothes of several colors. But in the ancient world, that process was a hard and complicated process. And so if you had yarn that was dyed specific colors, that was a valuable thing. So blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine, twi fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, or again, whatever animal that actually is, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices, for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Again, spices were something that often as spices had to come from a long way. Um, I mean, they still do, but now, they, now that's an easy and cheap process, but in, in, in the past it was not. Onyx stones, stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece, so precious jewels and stones. God's dwelling place was going to require the very best of what the Israelites had to give. It wasn't just, you know, throw together a tent out of whatever you've got to hand. Gold and silver, diamonds, gems. The God who we serve, the God who the Israelites served, was worthy worthy of whatever whatever you own, whatever energy you have, whatever mental energy, whatever talent, whatever skill, God is worth the best of it. So not only does the tabernacle reveal that God is worthy of the best of what his people have, but it also reveals that God is beautiful. And he is worthy of being celebrated with beauty. So it talks about what these curtains are supposed to look like to a certain extent, how they're supposed to be the mixture of the blue and the purple and the scarlet yarn and how the interior curtains are supposed to have cherubim, uh, representations of angelic beings on them. The, the, the altar, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the top, the mercy seat, where atonement will be made for the people is to be pure, solid gold. The box is to be overlaid with gold. The lampstand is a talent of gold. This actually goes more to the worthy part than the beauty part, but it's also really pretty when you see it sparkling. And, um, but so it's, it's not, again, just a, just a drab, like army, army tent. I mean, this is supposed to be a place that demonstrates the beauty of the king. And one of the, one of the interesting things that just 
just in the car on the way here this morning that struck me about this because I was thinking about that life-size model in Israel that there is all this description of beauty that's involved and almost all of it is on the inside of the tabernacle or is covered by the outer coverings. So it just struck me that if, you know, a random Joe Israelite, or Joseph Israelite, I suppose, um, who comes into the front, he sees the opening screen, but he doesn't see all this golden stuff. He doesn't see the, the cherubim and, and the weaving that's involved. That's all there, and the priests see it, and the high priest sees it. It's all inside the tabernacle. It's all, it's all kind of imaginary to the, to, the, to the guy on the outside, but he knows it's there. And the, the thing that struck, me, that struck me about this this morning was for some reason it reminded me of, of Matthew chapter 6 and the call to honor God in secret, to pray in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you, to, to uh, not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so your giving will be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you, to fast in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That it's important that God's dwelling be beautiful but it's even more important that it be an internal and not an external beauty. And so as I was thinking about that driving over here, I was thinking in terms of how much of my godliness and character is something that's on the outside where, where people can see, how, how much is reflected on what's truly inside of me? How much does God fully see? Well, God sees everything that there is to see, so it's a silly question. But... The beauty of the tabernacle, the physical beauty of the tabernacle was an internal beauty and not external. And so our character and our beauty before God should be primarily or, or, or should grow out of an internal holiness and godliness and love that then expresses itself in action, whether in prayer or in giving or in fasting or in witness. So, beauty. The tabernacle reveals that God is beautiful. The tabernacle also reveals God's sovereignty. If you look again in chapter 25, verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And again and again and again, throughout the next six chapters and through the last five chapters, of Exodus, we're going to hear that the people did exactly as God commanded. God is sovereign. God is entitled to our complete obedience. The commands that he gives must be obeyed. The prohibitions that he gives must be observed without reservation. Because he is worthy of it, because he is the Lord and he has the authority. There's no room in what God gives 
and what God gives here to the people of Israel for just making this up as you go. He gives Moses a specific pattern and tells him to follow it. He reveals that pattern to the guys that are going to be helping Moses. We're going to talk about them in a little bit here. And says to them, follow exactly the pattern that I show you. This becomes especially important in the second half of the tabernacle story. So there's the instructions, then we have the golden calf and Moses going up and meeting and seeing God's glory and receiving a renewed covenant. And then we come back to the people building God's, God's, God's home. And, and one of the interesting things about this is, again, if you think about the movement of Exodus, what were the Israelites doing at the beginning of Exodus? They were slaves building temples and storehouses and pyramids and whatever else for Pharaoh under forced labor. But now, when you get into chapters 36 to 40, 35 to 40, what instead do you see from the people of God that freely, one of the interesting things, especially for uh, one of the interesting things about this, when God, when, God commands, when God commands the people, he commands Moses, he says, take up a contribution. As every person is moved, he shall give. In, uh, verse, in chapter 35, verse 4, now that Moses has come back down from the mountain and shattered the commandments and gone back up the mountain and gotten new commandments and come back down, he says to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is, a, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. And so then, and then he gives them the list of the stuff they need again. And let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. And then, and then what do you see that in verse 20, all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting. Men and women, everyone who's a willing heart, brought all this stuff. And, and later on in the story, you find out that the, they've been bringing all this stuff, and the craftsmen have been storing it up and working with it or whatever. And then eventually the craftsmen come to Moses and say, look, the people are bringing too much stuff. We don't need all this stuff. Like everything we need for the tabernacle, we've already got. So Moses then has to command the people, stop bringing stuff. <laughs> but notice, whoever is a generous heart and as their heart moved them. So these people who were, Is who were Israelites, they're still Israelites. These people who were slaves and were, were doing forced labor, having to build these, these palaces and storehouses for Pharaoh, now, out of the joy and freedom of their heart, bring more than is required for God's command. They overflow in obedience and in generosity. And one of the commentators I was reading described it this way, that, that given the, the apostasy, what they'd just done with the golden calf and the way they'd just blown things for God, Given the apostasy, such obedience is an external demonstration of loyalty to Yahweh. Obedience 
arises out of a heart and spirit properly turned toward God. So now that these people have realized not only how they've betrayed their God, but how he has graciously forgiven them, they respond in joy to obey everything he commands and to overflow in, in, in giving what is required for his dwelling place. So the tabernacle reveals that God's worthy. He's worthy of the best, best that people have. It reveals that God is beautiful because he dwells in a place of beauty. It, it reveals that God is sovereign who requires obedience. It reveals God's holiness that he's been up on a mountain, separated from the people. Now he's going to come down in their midst and live in the middle of their camp. And one of the, one of the things I liked, I don't remember if it was last week when Mike said this or if it was one of the previous weeks, but one of the things the tabernacle does is it provides a shelter for God among the people, and it provides a shelter for the people from the presence of God because there is this holy place that they can't go into, but God is there. And so he's in the middle of their camp. So their life, all of their life is oriented around him. He's not distant on a mountain now, but he's in, he's in the middle, the very middle of their camp in this tabernacle. But that means, because God's presence requires holiness, that the people must also be holy, or there's got to be some barrier to, to separate them. But we also see this in the instructions about the clothing and the, the anointing of the priests in chapters 28 and 29. This is such a serious concept that this holy God is going to be right in the middle, that there must be something to make a way to purify the people to come in. There must be a representative, the priests, to make sacrifices. They can, God can only be approached in this tabernacle, in the middle of the camp, through the shedding of blood, through the blood of animals sacrificed on the altar, and then once a year purifying the whole tabernacle complex, the whole nation, through the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat, the atonement seat over the ark, because we are sinful people and God is a holy God. So there must still, for the Israelites, there must still be a, a separation from the presence of God because he is holy and his holiness cannot dwell with the evil of the human heart, which we'll come back to in a moment. But even the priests must constantly be washing themselves, must constantly be offering sacrifices for their own holiness so that they can approach. And again, one of the things that struck me as I was, I was as, I, as I've been studying and meditating on this is that uh, two weeks ago, one of the things Mike said was that the, 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 the first responsibility of the leaders of God's people is to seek true worship among God's people, to see that when you worship, you're worshiping the true God. But within that, one of the first responsibilities for that leader who is going to seek true worship among God's people is that he himself must be holy. He himself must be godly. 
And so for Mike and for Michael and for Steve and for Frank and to a similar extent as well to Sarah as you lead the children's ministry, to Cody as you lead worship and youth, to Kristen as you lead the ministry, the, the women's ministry, be holy. Like, let that be your priority for your ministry here at this church. To be holy and godly. And to be a model of holiness and godliness for the people. Because God is holy, his people must be holy. His priests and his servants must be holy. His dwelling place must be holy. And finally... One of the things that the tabernacle reveals about God is his transcendent greatness. God is so beyond humanity that even when he gives Moses the plans for a tent and and for the complex that's going to surround it and the furnishings that are in it, to create this dwelling place for God requires supernatural power and skill. Like the random... Mount Sinai Construction Company contractors cannot do this. At the beginning of uh, chapter 31, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and so forth. The first person... God identifies as filled with the Spirit of God in Scripture is Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, who is the one who will be sort of supervising the actual day-to-day work of, of building the tabernacle because God is so beyond that only by the Spirit of God can his, can his dwelling place be secured. And we see at the end of chapter 40 might actually be in chapter 49. Yes. In chapter 40, in the end of chapter 39 in, in verse 43 Moses, the, so the people bring, bring all that they've done. They bring it to the Lord. They bring it to Moses. And so according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work and behold they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. And then in uh, chapter 40, Moses actually sets it up. And finally in 40, starting in verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So as the people had seen God come down on the mountain, and he displayed his presence on the mountain in a cloud and in fire and thunder, Now, as they have worked with the skill that God has given them, with the power of his spirit, 
to fully obey everything that's been commanded. They've built this tabernacle. It's set up in the middle of their camp. And God's cloud, his presence, cloud and fire come down and fill the tabernacle such that even Moses can't go into it because the presence of God there is so... I'm just going to leave it at because the presence of God there is so... So now I want to say something briefly about what comes next in the story of the tabernacle and God's people. Because this tabernacle, this amazing tent structure with its beauty and with its gold and with its holiness is a temporary thing. The Israelites are going into the promised land. They're going into a a, a new place, a new home, And eventually, once they have overcome their enemies, they've settled. The tabernacle is replaced with a temple. And so what once was the presence of God in the middle of the camp is now the presence of God in one city in a country. And that temple was polluted with idolatry. And and the people lost the obedience. They lost the sense of God's sovereignty. They lost the sense of God's holiness. They let it go. And in Ezekiel chapter 10, we see that God's glory departed from that temple. His presence was taken away and returned in a baby in Bethlehem 580 years later. God, God's plan for dwelling among his people was never a building, but something more. In John chapter 1, we we read that the word became flesh, the word being Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And where it says dwelt, it uses the same Greek word that's used for the temple, or for the tabernacle. He was the presence of God manifest in flesh, but still in one place. And he gave his life and offered himself as a perfect sacrifice, as you read in, in Hebrews chapter 8, verses nine, in chapters 8 and 9, where Christ entered the heavenly tabernacle and offered a sacrifice once for all to purify his people. And then poured out his Holy Spirit so that now, God's presence is not in a building. It is in people. It is in all of us who are filled by his spirit. But still spread and dispersed, spread throughout the world like yeast through bread, but still limited. And there is coming a day when the Lord will return and the heavens and the earth will be renewed and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That day is coming when God's presence will be in his people by his spirit and omnipresently in the new creation, in the new earth, physically in Christ and manifestly in the Father. And we will be one people of God throughout the whole earth. That day is coming.
one of the things I read last night talking about the, uh, the, last, the last five chapters of, uh, of, of Exodus uh, <laughs> was a description of, like the focus in chapters 35 to 40 is not on the tabernacle as a structure. The focus is on the building, the making of the tabernacle, the preparing of a dwelling place for God. And the way the author described it was, this is a people in Advent mode. These are people who are building in hope towards something that God is going to do. So in our lives, we are living and walking in hope towards something that God is going to do based on something that God has already done. So the call to us then is to live lives that display the character of God because we are the the tabernacle. We are the dwelling place of God by his Holy Spirit. Us together, you see both of these things in in, in Paul's writings that, that the people of God are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, but also individually. Our bodies are the temple of the Lord. So, If God's dwelling place is intended to demonstrate his beauty and his goodness and his sovereignty and his holiness, if it demonstrates his faithfulness to fulfill his promises, then we as his people, by his spirit, need to live in such a way that will demonstrate that, that will display that, beginning with a secret inner beauty in ourselves of godliness and holy character, and expanding to the world around us in generosity and love and kindness and faithfulness and in proclamation of what God has done. That's who we are. We are God's Advent people looking forward to the day when when his presence suffuses the whole earth. I hope that's what suffuse means. So join me as I pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you that through your Son and by your Spirit, you have made a new dwelling place for yourself among your people. Lord, thank you that you were calling us into a kingdom that never perishes, a kingdom that is, that is, is, is completely pure and holy because of the work of Christ and because of your Holy Spirit renewing us. Lord, let us be people who offer ourselves as living sacrifices to your glory. And Lord, give us hope and longing for the day when all things are complete. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us?
But now I am found Was blind But now I see As we sing this next song Would you just prepare your hearts for communion?
Good morning. I want to ask you to stretch your mind a little bit. Something I've been thinking about since uh, Mike asked that question of us in last worship service at the end. He said, do you know that God is with you? And I don't know about you, but I keep thinking about that, especially in this time of Advent. So I just want you to picture in your mind and imagine how far and how long would it take for us to travel from one end of the universe to the other? Just think about that. Scientists believe that just the radius of that distance is 46 billion light years. But it's hard for us to even conceive of what that looks like. So why would God even create all of that? If we can't even get to it or see it or experience it, I think sometimes God puts things before us that are so awesome and mind-bending that our only response is to fall down in worship of him. John Calvin said that we can't really understand the nature of God unless we first understand something of the nature of ourselves first. That we need to be able to see and understand how sin affects us. And only then will we know something of God's gloriousness. If there were a way for us to visualize how great a chasm our sin has created between us and a holy God, I'm pretty certain that it would be far more distant than 46 billion light years away. But the amazing thing about God is that he is so madly in love with us that he closed that gap so that he might dwell with us and he might be our God. That he is Emmanuel, God with us. Communion reminds us that Jesus Christ closed the gap by doing something that we could never do for ourselves in 46 billion light years. And that is to save ourselves from the wrath of God. Jesus stepped in in our place and took that punishment upon himself. Scripture says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin for for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Would you stand with me as we take the elements together? And as you hold that in your hand, as surely as we see this and hold this, we know that Jesus gave his body as an atoning sacrifice for our sin so that we might dwell with him and he might dwell with us. Let's take this in awe and wonder and thanks.
Let's drink together. Let's continue singing in worship. And I pick it up at Hallelujah. on so no one's going to know if you fumbled over the words but uh, as you're able uh, please join me in saying the grace
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Go in peace.